in Acts chapter 13, and this morning we are going to be looking from Acts chapter 13 at verses 13 through 41 of Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also to another in Psalms, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that 
Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It's faithful and it's true. And Father, I pray that as your word goes forth this morning, that it would go deep inside of our hearts, that it would divide asunder the the very thoughts and the intents of our heart, that God, that we would receive it. And as we've gathered here this morning, that we would be moved by it, Father, that we would even reflect upon our lives and that because we have come into this place and heard the proclamation of your word, not the proclamation of somebody that can discern your word, but to heard the proclamation of your word. God, I pray that we leave a changed people because we've encountered the word of God that is living and active. Speak to us today. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had someone break a promise to you? You know, we're, we're not surprised when politicians break promises, but it really seems to hurt when someone that we love breaks a promise. The simple truth of the matter is that when a promise is broken, people are hurt, and sadly, people just break promises for one reason or another. However, this morning, I want you to understand that God does not break His promises. He is a promise-keeping God. In fact, this morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul in his sermon express the praise of God in relation to salvation, and he expresses a promise of God, and it makes a, he makes a promise that you can count on. What we have recorded in these verses this morning is Paul's first and his longest sermon, and at the heart of this message is the promise of God in relation to salvation to mankind. And I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 23, we read, Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Then in verse 32 and 33, uh, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, the first thing I want us to notice is the setting that we're in. In verses 13 through 16, we can uh, make some notes about the setting specifically for Paul and Barnabas or Paul and his companions as the verses lay out for us. And the first thing I want us to notice about that setting is this, that they left Cyprus and they headed to what is a present day Turkey. They left Cyprus and headed to present day Turkey. So we read that Paul and his companions left where they were at, which was Paphos, and they set sail for Perga and Pamphylia. And this is a location is on the southern tip of modern day Turkey. And Perga was about 12 miles inland and it lay between the Taurus Mountains and the Mediterranean Sea. 
Now what's important to understand is that Pamphylia is under Roman jurisdiction and Perga where they ended up was, was gotten to by traveling seven miles up the Sestris River and then traveling about five miles westward on foot. It seems that Perga is just a stopping point at this time. But I want us to notice that it was not just some easy little trek like we have today where you you know you get in your car and, and you go where you need to go or or if you gotta go real far you can hop on a plane and get there. They didn't have those luxuries. They didn't have that privilege. Travel was sometimes very difficult. However, as noted, this was was apparently just a, a stopping point. They're just here and and we just have this stopping point for them. Because it's here that we read that John Mark leaves. Luke simply writes, if you're following along there, Luke simply writes, there John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So it's at Perga that John Mark leaves the company of Paul and Barnabas and he returns to Jerusalem. And there have been all kinds of speculations and suggestions as to why John Mark left, but none of them can be substantiated. And I'm not really in the business of speculation. And Luke is silent on why John Mark left. Luke does not uh, uh, tell us exactly, but he does later clarify that John Mark's departure was a serious matter for Paul. And in fact, it was so serious that, that uh, this John Mark leaving creates a falling out later between Paul and Barnabas. And I want to make it clear that there are times that there are disagreements even within the body of Christ. And there will be times when those who serve the Lord will experience some people deserting them because they are unwilling to pay the price. Let me be clear. The language about John Mark leaving is descriptive and it's not prescriptive. And in that I mean this. It is describing what happened. It is saying John Mark left. That's all Luke is telling us. He has not given us a prescription of what we are supposed to do. He's not saying that when the going gets tough or things get hard that you better cut tail and run and get out of Dodge and, and get out of there. It's just saying this, he's just describing what happened. So we can't take this verse and say, oh, see, John Mark left. So that means we're supposed to leave when going gets tough. Not at all. It's just describing. Notice also in verse 14, we see that they arrive at their destination. Verse 14 says they went from Perga to Antioch in Pisidia. And this language does not capture for us the arduous trek it would have been for Paul and his companions. Antioch was roughly 100 miles north across the Taurus mountain range. The, the route there would have been barren and it's often flooded by mountain streams. And uh, even it was notorious for thieves and all kinds of criminal activity. Even the Romans had difficulty bringing this area under control. This was the journey to Antioch, Pisidia. This was the journey that laid ahead of them. 100 miles of rough terrain, no car, nothing like that. They have these miles of terrain and they went anyway. On a side note, there was a largest Jewish population that was there. And so they made this trek and then we notice in this setting that they entered the synagogue. The latter part of verse 14, we read they entered the synagogue and they sat down. And that was really Paul's customary mode of evangelism. 
Stand in the synagogue and teach in the synagogue. And we note that it was the Sabbath, so it was Saturday, and Paul knew that he would have an audience at the synagogue. Now note a few things. First, that Paul and those with him were consumed with making Christ known. They entered a city and they looked for opportunities to share the gospel. And quite honestly, this should be convicting to us to know that that Paul and his companions, they would enter a city and the first thing that they tried to do was look for ways that they'd be able to share the gospel. Some of us have lived in the city all of our lives and we rarely share the gospel. But here's Paul and his companions constantly looking to share the gospel. How often do we go through our day not even looking for opportunities to share the gospel? How often do we go to the store or go to the restaurant or talk with our neighbors or go to work or whatever it might be and we don't even see if there's an opportunity that we might interject something about Christ in that conversation. But Paul and his companions are consumed with making Christ known and they enter this synagogue and secondly we notice that that they went to where the people were at you notice that they didn't just say oh boy i hope some people show up i hope that some people come to where we're at but they went to where people were at and if we want to share the gospel go find some people right i mean we live in a pretty populated area it's not too hard to find someone and so if you want to share then go find some people Notice what else about this setting. There's an invitation to speak. The rulers of the synagogue, and I always I find this interesting when I read this, but, but, but the rulers of the synagogue send a message to Paul and his companions, and they say, basically, hey guys, if you got something encouraging to say, share it with us. If you got something encouraging to say, then do it. I mean, that's an open door. It was actually very common to ask someone to deliver a message from the day's uh, scripture reading that would have been read that day. It's very common practice in the synagogue to do this. Additionally, let's remember that Paul was a rabbi and he may have even been dressed in his rabbinical robe. We don't know at the time. But it says that Paul then stood up and he gathers the attention of the people and he begins his message. And so we have... The setting. We, we know how they got to where they got. Luke describes to us, this is, this is what happened. John Mark left. They went on this journey. This is, now they're here. They're sitting in the synagogue. And the, and the, and the people say, hey, if you got something encouraging to say, then please say it. Paul gathers them and he starts his message and he begins with this. This is how Paul begins. God's working in history to send a savior. God's working in history to send a Savior. As Paul begins his message, look to who he speaks. To both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in the congregation. And he starts off with very common knowledge for the Jews. First, God chose their forefathers. That's how he starts off. And that he delivered descendants from the hands of the Egyptians. And he gave them the land of Canaan. And he chose David to be their king. This is the very history of Israel. All those in the synagogue would have known all of this that Paul is sharing. This is kind of one of those messages where people today would be would be sitting there. And, and you know, if it was today's world, people would probably be amen and Paul. 
Like, amen, Paul. That's right. That's right. That's what happened. In agreement with everything Paul's saying. Now, now notice the leap that Paul makes from verse 22 to verse 23. In verse 22, God, uh, uh, we, we see that, that this is the language. He says, uh, God says, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. And then in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. And not just a Savior. Paul says, Jesus, as he promised. I'm certain they're tracking with him until he made that leap. Right from David to Jesus. Skipping the rest of history of the Israelites. And then Paul goes to John the Baptist proving that John did not consider himself the Messiah, but instead he was not even worthy to to untie the sandals of the one that was to come. Now here's the point that Paul is making. God has sovereignly worked in history to bring about his promise of salvation. That's what Paul's doing. God has sovereignly worked in history to bring about his promise of salvation. Now, if we pay attention, we see God at work in the history of Israel. Paul says, God chose their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice Paul does not say they chose, but God chose them. He didn't say they chose their forefathers, but God chose their forefathers. Then, while they were in Egypt, Paul says, God made the people great. It doesn't say they made themselves great. What does Paul say? God made the people great. And then he says, God led them out of Egypt. They didn't lead themselves out of Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. And he did it with an uplifted arm, meaning that he did it by his power. But wait, there is more. God, it says, God put up with them. I love that verse. (laughs) God put up with them. I wonder how many times God puts up with me. God put up with them. How long did God put up with them? 40 years God put up with them. Some manuscripts actually say he carried them for 40 years. God gave them Saul. God raised up David. God brought a savior. Oh wait, there's even more. God destroyed seven nations. They didn't conquer the land, but God conquered the land. And after God destroyed these nations, God gave them their land as an inheritance. And then after all this, God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then Israel wanted to be like all the other nations because they looked around and said, why aren't we like all the other nations? Then then, uh, he gave them King Saul and then God removed Saul and he raised up David. Then according to his promise, he raised up the offspring of David to bring Israel Savior. Please understand, church, this is the theme throughout Paul's message that God sovereignly is working in history to bring about his plan. All history is God's story, and no one can stop his plan. And just in case you were wondering, peek down at verse 29. The death of Christ, them taking him from the cross. Laying him in the tomb was all a fulfillment of what was written about him. There's no way around it. God is sovereign over history and he acts to bring about his plan. And Paul is making it abundantly clear. Someone said, well, this is crazy. 
I don't want to worship a God that is in control, but I say the opposite. I would not want to worship a God that does not have control. When I look around at the world and I see everything going amok, I know God's in control. That there's nothing that will stop His plan. He made a promise to send a Savior and in spite of His people that, that rejected Him and in spite of His people not following Him, in spite of His people going their own way, He kept His promise. And He sent Jesus. And because we are not in control, His plan does not hinge upon me. God's plan doesn't depend on me and it doesn't depend on you. God's plan depends on God. What a great promise. Why did God choose Abraham? It wasn't because Abraham was following God. Abraham was a pagan and an idolater living in a pagan land. But God in his sovereignty revealed himself to Abraham and called him. The same is true of Isaac and Jacob. There was nothing in them that caused God to choose them. It was only by his sovereign grace. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, Paul makes it abundantly clear that God's choice of Jacob and God's rejection of Esau had nothing to do with either one of them, but was solely so that God's purpose would stand. If grace is dependent on anything, it's not grace. All throughout Israel's history, we see the grace of God. Even when they were wicked, God's grace remained. And even when David sinned with Bathsheba and her husband uh, had her husband murdered, God in his grace sends a savior through David's offspring. Church, I don't think, I don't think that Paul can make it any clearer. If we somehow think that we stand before God because of something in us, our choice, our goodness, our works, our righteousness, or anything else, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel of the grace of God. God's grace means that we have salvation in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. There's nothing in me or in you that deserves salvation. God started the process from the beginning. Then he moved all of history in order to accomplish his purpose. And he brings dirty, rotten sinners that deserve only judgment. Just like you and me. And by his grace, he brings us to salvation. Praise God. That is grace. That's grace, church. I don't deserve it. That's grace. But notice what else we see Paul doing here as he talks about God moving history. We notice that Jesus is the goal of God's working in history. Jesus is the goal of God's working in history. Paul makes it very clear that God's working throughout the history of Israel was a working towards a goal, an outcome. And in verse 23, after he has walked through this history of Israel and shown how God has controlled history, he makes this statement, God has brought to Israel Savior Jesus as he promised. The culmination of God's sovereign, sovereignly working in Israel's history is found in Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 1.11. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Jesus is the purpose. Or how about Colossians chapter 1 verses 16 through 18. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or how about Romans chapter 11 verse 36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever amen all of these books written by the apostle Paul making it abundantly clear that God controls history for one goal and that's the glory of Jesus Christ Jesus is the hero He's the hero. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the goal from the beginning to the end. It's all about Jesus. And anyone or anything that tries to steal the focus from Jesus is not from God. The entire history of Israel and the entire Old Testament was written to point to one person. And that's Jesus Christ. And all the New Testament centers on one person. And the work of one person. And that is Jesus Christ. And God moved in history towards the goal. Which was Jesus Christ. And guess what? God is still moving in history towards the goal. Guess what it is? It's Jesus. Because one day there's going to be a grand finale. And when Jesus defeats Satan once and for all. It's all about Jesus. So we've seen the setting of how all this takes place. We've seen how God works in history to send a Savior. Now let's notice this. The realization of God's promise is seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The realization of God's promise is seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 27. Paul's answering a question. And he's answering a question before it's even asked. He's answering why the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. What does Paul say? It was because they didn't recognize him. In their minds, the Messiah was a political figure. He was going to come and he was going to overthrow Roman rule. And in this, uh, if this is the case, then, then um, he would have to be a soldier. He would have to have prestige and influence, trained to know what he's doing. And Jesus... He wasn't any of those. Jesus didn't even go to rabbinical school. So they didn't recognize him because they weren't looking for him in a true sense. In fact, Jesus told them they searched the scriptures thinking that in them they had eternal life. But, but the scripture testified about him and they were unwilling to come to him so they may have life. In Matthew 13, Jesus said, you will keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You will keep on seeing, but you're not going to perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return. And I would heal them. They didn't recognize the Messiah. And he stood right in front of them. They couldn't recognize him. 
And even though they didn't recognize the Messiah, and even in their rejecting him, and even in their killing of Jesus, it didn't stop God's plan. It fulfilled it. What does he say in verse 29? And when they had carried out all, not some, all, when they had carried out all that was written of him. It's the exact same thing Peter taught. It's the exact same thing the early church prayed. It's not some new teaching. It's not even a radical teaching. That the crucifixion of Jesus fulfilled what God's purpose predestined to happen. But that in no way absolves man of their responsibility. That in no way absolves man who participated in the crucifixion uh, of Jesus of their responsibility. But it does exalt God who in his sovereignty who in his sovereignty is able to use the most wicked deeds of the most wicked man to still accomplish his sovereign purpose. And at the same time, hold them guilty of their wickedness. You say, well, how does all that work? Honestly, I don't know. Look at verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Church, the wicked men killed Jesus. God overruled them by raising him from the dead. And not only was he raised from the dead, but God raised him to exaltation. He's not a dead savior. He's no longer in the grave, but he is a living and active savior who sits on the throne forever and ever. That's the God we serve. So we've, we've seen the setting. This is how this transpires. We've seen how God's worked in history to send a Savior. And then we see the realization of God's promise as seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now let's see the response. Let's see the response. The response is either salvation or death. The response is either salvation or death. Or death. Look with me at verse 38. Paul calls them brothers. Interesting in verse 15, the rulers of the synagogue called Paul brother and those with him as brothers. Then in verse 26, Paul calls them brothers. And now again in verse 38, he calls them brothers. They're not believers at this point. They're fellow Jews, and he uses this friendly language with them. And he delivers some promises, and he closes with a stern warning. Remember the title of the message this morning, Sarah, in your bulletin, God keeps his promises. So let's first look at the promises that Paul delivers. He says, God offers forgiveness and justification for everyone who believes. Notice the language that Paul uses in verse 38. That through this man, 
He says that through this man. Do you know how the Jews thought they were acceptable to God? They thought they were acceptable to God through the keeping of the law of Moses. However, Paul makes it clear that no one can gain right standing with God through the keeping of the law. The law serves to condemn us. You know why? Because we can't keep it. Every single person has violated God's holy law and there's no way that we can be brought into right standing through our feeble attempts to keep the law. So the first promise is forgiveness. And the second is justification. The text says everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now that word freed in Greek is to be justified. Justification is is being um, decreed righteous in the sight of God through the merits of Jesus Christ. The point being that Jesus provides what the law of Moses can't provide. The law can't bring justification. The law can't make you right because only Jesus can. It is through justification that we get to stand Before God. As if we had never even sinned. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ. Is imputed. On us through faith. I know that's some big words. Talk about justification. Righteousness. Why why can we stand before God. As if we've never sinned. That's the idea of justification. We are justified before God. He looks at us. And we are justified. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ. Who is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, never sin, is imputed on us. That means that the righteousness of Christ, who is perfectly righteous, is charged to your account. What a promise, church. Do you get that promise? That our standing before an infinitely holy God can change in an instant? I mean, do you understand that? In an instant. This is, this is the wonder of salvation. In an instant, you go from guilty sinner to justified saint. In an instant, just like, bam! Before you can snap your fingers, the moment, the moment you receive Christ as Savior, you go from guilty sinner, justified saint. Bam! Just so fast. What a promise. The moment we receive Jesus as Savior, the one who paid our price on the cross, you and I are instantly changed. So we have these promises. Forgiveness and justification through Christ. Forgiveness of my sin. I I can be forgiven and I can be justified from sinner to saint. For all who believe. But then Paul gives this warning, right? Do you see that warning? It sounds like such nice language, doesn't it? 
Look, you scoffers. Doesn't that sound great? So encouraging. Be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe. Even if one tells it to you. Paul starts off verse 40 with this idea of beware. He says, beware therefore. So I think it makes it pretty clear that he is issuing a warning. And then he quotes a prophecy, and this prophecy is from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. This was a warning given to Judah of the impending judgment God was bringing to them from the Babylonians because they had unrepentant hearts. The relevance to Paul's audience is clear. Paul has proclaimed the truth of the gospel to them. Paul has proclaimed forgiveness and justification and that it's achieved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now they must decide which side they are on. They can either be believing disciples just like Paul or scornful opponents of Jesus. If they do not believe and scoff at God's gracious promise of salvation, they will perish in the coming judgment. Church, we don't, we don't really hear stuff like that anymore, right? I mean, we won't hear a lot of that. We won't hear a lot of, hey, if you walk out of here lost, judgment's coming. We don't, we don't even like to say that kind of stuff anymore. I can remember being a, a young student pastor and, and going out and doing street evangelism. And as we're getting ready to go do street evangelism, the guy stood up to give us instructions on how to do street evangelism. And I can remember him saying, now, we don't want you to use the word hell. Of course, you all know me. I don't care what you want me to use. I'll say whatever I want because hell's real and the Bible talks about it and I did I used the word hell but that's the way the world goes we don't, we don't want to say there's judgment we don't want to tell people that they're going to perish if they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ but that's exactly what Paul says I, I proclaim to you forgiveness and justification and you can either receive it and, and be a follower of Christ, be a disciple of Jesus or you can reject it and you will perish. Church, we live in a time where folks scoff at the message of forgiveness and justification. Why do they scoff at a message of forgiveness? Well, because they don't believe in a God that judges. And they will say, well, God is love. And not judgment. If God is not a just judge, then He is not love. Do you understand that? If God is not a just judge, then He is not love. And here's the thing, God is perfectly just. And he is a perfect judge. 
and he's perfectly loving. You know why? Because they both go together. I'm not loving my child if I just let them do whatever they want and just let them get away with doing whatever and I don't ever discipline them and I don't ever say to them, you can't do that. No. That's not just. It's not loving either. God is perfectly just and perfectly loving. But we live in a world where it's like, oh, God doesn't judge. Judge not lest ye be judged yourself. It doesn't matter what we think God is like. It matters what he is like. And he has revealed that to us in his word. That hell is forever and so is heaven. And we will spend eternity in one place or the other. But remember, we serve a promise-keeping God. And the God who warns of the judgment to come. And Paul makes it clear that God faithfully kept his promise when he sent Jesus as the Savior for all who believe. It is through Jesus that forgiveness is proclaimed and that through him that justification takes place. But be warned, all those who scoff at him or ignore his promise will pay the price and the price is eternal hell eternal hell one last thing to keep in mind remember Paul was in the synagogue he was speaking to people that believed in God but they never placed their faith in the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ And you encounter many people today that say, well, I believe in God. You encounter a lot of people that way. And in fact, if you spend any amount of time sharing the gospel with folks, you'll encounter plenty of people that their response to you will be, I believe in God. But you know, belief in God doesn't get you to heaven. It's not how you get to heaven. You can't say, why? I believe in God. Lots of people believe in God. And they're going to hell. It's not good enough. You don't just believe in God. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let somebody get away saying to you, oh, I believe in God, and you chalk them up to being a Christian. In fact, if we did a poll here in Washington, I'm sure probably 95% of the people would say they believed in God. But I guarantee you 95% of the people in Washington don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's not your belief in God that saves you. It's faith in Christ. And so your response this morning, you say, well, how do I respond to this message? It's twofold. First, Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you trusted in the promise that God has given? Knowing that you have to experience forgiveness of sin and that you are justified before God only through Jesus Christ. Have you experienced that? Can you say this morning when you walk out of these doors and you go out into the church parking lot 
and, and you get ready to go home, if something were to happen to you, if you were to die today, can you say, I know I'm going to heaven because I know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I'm justified. I've experienced forgiveness and I'm a saint. I went from being a, a sinner to a saint. Can you say that? If you say, I can't say that. I say to you, beware. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days. You will perish. And spend eternity in hell without Christ. And you could say, well, that's not a very loving thing to say. And I would say, no, that is the most loving thing I could say. If you don't know Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. So I say to you this morning, do you know him? I don't care how long you've been going to church. I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you've given money. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? And secondly, I'd say this. You say, well, I'm a believer, Pastor. I've placed my faith in Christ. Are you sharing that faith? And if you say this morning, I'm a believer, I'd ask this of you. Have you learned anything of how Paul presented the gospel in this message? Maybe this morning, if you'd say, yeah, I'm a believer, maybe this morning you could write down one thing that you've learned, that you can put into practice this week. Maybe one thing that this is, I need to do this this week. This is the one thing I need to do. Maybe that's you. And maybe you'll put that into practice and attempt to share the gospel with someone this week. Maybe even today. So do you know Jesus? And are you sharing him what will you put into practice from this message from how we see paul delivering the gospel to these folks here in a moment we're gonna we're gonna sing a song before we do that i'm gonna lead us in prayer and if the lord's spoken to you today in some way shape or form if he's if he's revealed to you that you don't know christ i'll be glad to talk with you or pray with you and maybe this morning uh it's been revealed that You've just not really been sharing the gospel in the way that, that you're supposed to. Maybe you're allowing people to get away with the whole, why well, believe in God, instead of pushing in on Him. Maybe you'd like to pray, or maybe you need some prayer. I'll be standing right down front. Love to pray with you. However God has spoken to you, I'd love for you to respond this morning. Let's close with prayer.